and welcome to the Dice Screaming Podcast. Ow! Are the dice howling? Yeah, they're howling happy because, hey man, it's good to be back. Yeah. Welcome yeah. once again to the Nick Nolte mugshot of gaming podcasts. <laughs> oh. There's more truth in that that I'm entirely comfortable with. If you knew what I've been through the last two weeks in terms of uh, three weeks, if you include the preparation for inventory followed by multiple inventories around the state. Yeah. Man, it, damn it, son. Oh, oh come on. Uh, yeah. And well, you've had a rough couple of days. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been a tough couple of weeks. Way oh, too yeah. way too much work for an old man. But <laughs> hey, man, that's why they make a leave. So <laughs> yeah, so we're back. So uh, we kind of skipped uh, an episode. I was gonna think about falling in, but uh, we decided to just kind of coast along. So thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, we are back. Everything's just fine. Uh, and we're keeping our existing schedule. We will be covering our promised topic in the order in which we intended. In the order which was received. Yeah. And fall. And a fall in bank. Yeah, you will get your eventually you're on to it. And here we are with it. So uh yeah, didn't have any call-ins this week, but I did have a couple of questions of people concerned about our podcast, what was going on. I also had a uh, submission from a listener to listen to some other podcasts. So be bringing that up in the near future. I've been a little busy too on uh, doing some game stuff on the side. And, and look out, the arcane eyes out there, always lurking, always waiting, <laughs> looming on the horizon, <laughs> wreathed in flame. No, wrong eye, wrong, wrong eye. eye, wrong eye. <laughs> so we'll be bringing that up. Uh, similar yet legally distinct from any yeah, eyes. Similar, yeah. Any other eyes are completely unintentional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or use with permission uh, in this game. So, yeah, we had a uh, uh, couple of listeners give us some other things, so we'll be following that. Uh, also, our Facebook page has been growing a little bit. So we got to keep off the borderlands now on our follow. So uh, you can link up with them as well. Um, through the miracle. Love them. Love them. Yeah. We're uh, working real hard on getting a. New schedule up and running, so we've got plenty of content coming for you. Uh, our second round, this is our, we tend to sit down and plan about four to six months ahead of time. So I think we have plenty of content coming up. We've uh, hinted at it in the past to eat up a little time. So some of you uh, astute listeners out there may already know it's coming up. But uh, yeah, some RuneQuest coverage is going to be in the future here. So uh, this is a, a timely one for us to get into. Yeah, this is, as promised, the third edition, deluxe edition Yeah, this of is a big box set from Avalon Hill. But before we get into that, I also wanted to bring up from our past episode, we were talking about the D&D movie and the trailer. And yeah, everybody seemed to be pretty happy with that. So we're, we're pretty proud of it. Um, Pat uh, Galligan did call in and uh, let me hey, know. Hey, Pat. <laughs> that... Uh, Hey, you guys seem to be kind of bent out of shape about that whole D&D movie, or, you know, you really seem to have a, something stuck in your craw. Tell, tell me how you really thought. Yeah, uh, we did kind of put spoiler warnings on there, but, uh, yeah, it was yeah. kind of, we pulled the gloves off. And Guilty went, as charged. Look, I mean, the dude's right. You know, yeah. that, <laughs> we were that, a little hard. Pat's got our number. Uh, you know, he knows. Uh and all right, did we go a little too far with that? I mean, it, like it, it did seem a little bit like uh, you remember that scene in The Office where they take the computer that had the data they didn't want found, they take it out into a field, and 
you know, they then take out their baseball bats and proceed to tag team stomp pummel the crap out of that computer until there's nothing left. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like that. It was a little like that, and I admit that. I'm going to own it. Of course, we're not Andy Bernard or uh, Michael Scott, although we might be closer to Dwight Truth than any of us would care to admit. (laughs) Oh, no, no. uh, I'm I'm thinking of uh, the wrong office. Uh, uh, What was it? Office Space? Mm. Mike Judge movie, 1990s. Oh, 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 okay. They're totally off base in there. All right. Well. Yeah, the office space. I want my stapler. My red stapler. <laughs> oh. But yeah, um, we are uh, not apologetic about it, but at the same time, it, it, I, Pat and I had a little roundabout conversation about it. You know, I agree that there's some salvageable moments out of that, but it's mostly just disappointment. That's what we were left with. And as for an outer, that that disappointment for an opener was left a bitter taste in our mouth. Yeah, for those of us who really wanted to see our genre, like have a good treatment and have a franchise at a time when all the big franchises were getting started, and that was the new wave, okay? There was just a period where you could count on every year there would be three to four different blockbusters that were part of franchises. And you could be sure of it, like Clockwork, actually a whole bunch of them for a while there. And I admit it got a little tiresome, you know, when you would like, oh, what six movies related to franchises are in theaters this year? You know, it it Mm -hmm. didn't get a little predictable. But uh, point being, there was this enormous wave of success uh, for IPs and our particular beloved IP, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh man, I just it was like Ralph Wiggum's kid in, uh, you know, The Simpsons. You know, just I'm in danger. You know, derp. You know, yeah. Oh, it's hurt so much to be the losers in that. Uh, and so this time, I'm thinking we're gonna get a movie that we do not have to feel any shame about at yeah. all. Like, in fact, we can totally watch that one and feel like we got our money's worth, as opposed to wondering if there's a way that we could talk them into giving that money back. Because <laughs> uh, that would be a nice change of pace. Absolutely. So, yeah, we were we were pretty tough on it, but uh, all right. I was going to mock it and say that it, you know, like it was... It might have been better if it had been directed by Ed Wood channeling the spirit of Huey Bull. But I think Randy talked me down from the cliff and was like, yeah, dude, that is, you don't think that's a little harsh? And I was like, yeah, okay, you're right. I'm getting hyperbolic now. (laughs) I'm I'm getting second degree burns just, you know, being in close proximity to that. It's a horrible, horrible thing to do. Um, but thanks for checking in, Pat. Yes, we're okay. Love you, brother. All right. We lanched the boil. I let the pain out last time. Yeah, I think that that's cathartic. So, yeah. All right. So let's get into. It. We're talking about RuneQuest, and of course, this is the uh, I believe it was released around 1984. Uh, Chaosium sold rights to RuneQuest to Avalon Hill, getting a bigger treatment. They had come on hot off the heels off the two RuneQuest box sets and companions. And uh, Avalon Hill wanted to put their own thumbprint on it, which was fine. Uh, 
And that's what we're going to discuss here. But let's start right now with the deluxe set, which uh, came in a big, pretty sized box. It was about uh, 60 bucks, about $59. It was a, a premium product, and you would expect no less from Avalon Hill, who was ready to get into the role-playing game market big time. Yeah, circa 1984, it's obvious to one and all that uh, RPGs were here to stay. They had emerged out of the late 70s and emerged into like their new primacy, you know, they, they gelled and taken shape and proven to be a marketable force by 1984. And Avalon Hill, the respected maker of classic board games and, you know, other... Yeah, war games primarily, but... Yeah, especially other- war games. Uh, I still have a few of, like, their early, early Avalon Hill games yeah. uh, in the large, you know... Uh, library box sets you know just <laughs> yeah the bookcase shelf and then i loved them but i love this uh, this was uh, their you know voyage this is what really RPGs. sold me i had the second edition uh soft cover but from chaosium but this the RuneQuest uh one i love the cover on this one let's just take a moment to talk about this it's uh it's got cormac and uh signy the scythian on there exploring some uh forbidden runes ruins there and uh, you can see Cormac definitely with the Anglo-Saxon armor, but the detail in the armor alone just attracted me. Like, everything is just not only authentic to the period, but makes you feel like this is an optimized adventurer's practical gear. I mean, studded leather leggings. Uh, you know, he's got a brigandine, uh, like a splint nail shirt on, and a very Nordic shield. And Signy has the uh, scale mail. And a spear. You know, the, the weaponry, the armor, the clothing evokes an era prior to the overwhelming age of steel and what we think of as high medieval. You know, this is the pre-medieval. Uh, right, right. This is the, the, the dark Very age. in keeping with the intentions of RuneQuest being more of a, like, a culture emerging from the Bronze Age and into the Age of Iron. Uh, that man, the, right from the get-go, the first image you get, it really conjured all the right elements to say this is a genuine RuneQuest product. Yeah, so uh, the cover artist is uh, not well known. It's Jody Lee, and she, I believe, here was uh, one of the excerpts from uh, James Davis Nicole.com, uh, his blog, where he said that he, she delivered arguably the best RPG cover of the era. And used the models, Kate Elliott and her husband, as uh, Signe and Cormac. So, ah, yeah, that was, uh, I think that it's evocative. I like the use of colors. And also the box that came in this kind of uh, yellowish uh, gold. It kind of stuck out. It was a very fine product. And obviously, Avalon Hill spared no expense in getting some very good cover art. Now, as far as getting into the, the game itself, it came in five booklets. Uh, Kind of one was uh, two, three were color, colored for the players, and two were colored differently for the game master. And uh, the first two was kind of in this weird pink that uh, predates it. I didn't particularly like it, but it was definitely uh, it definitely stood out from the normal page that you had at the time. So this was typically you know, about a 1980s it's black and white illustration all the way through. But some good art. Uh, Elizabeth Danforth does uh, the Glorantha cover on that one. So, well, but, now they they had done the smart thing in that they had the player's book, the magic book, and the Glorantha book, uh, and then of course the game master and creatures books. 
uh, which those were the two that were, you know, to be kept secret and, you know, wielded by the DM alone. Uh, but the other three, you know, clearly demarked in such a way that people would know, hey, okay, the players can go ahead and pop these up. Yeah, excuse me. And get familiar. Two uh, player books and three game master books with the uh, optional Gloriantha. Now, here's where RuneQuest takes a, a right turn right off the bat. You're not going to be playing directly in Gloriantha. Now you can, and you continue playing in Gloriantha if you already know it. You're fine. Just keep playing. These some, there's a few new rules here, like the fatigue and uh, fatigue to cum- encumbrance rules uh, to make it interesting. But what really comes out is that they uh, plant this firmly in Dark Ages Europe, about uh, five to eight hundred AD. Yeah, I'm going to say that while there is no, uh, there's no absence of Glorantha-based material. There is an entire section dedicated to Glorantha uh, so that one can have their traditional rune quest if they please. But what makes this unique edition the one that we're looking at today, I mean, the reason we picked this to discuss instead of, like, say, some other historic, like, oh, first edition rune quest, why is this one interesting? Because it was a little transition moment where editorially they decided to branch out. Like, what if there were other places that you could make use of the RuneQuest system and style and the rule set? Uh, but could you transport that to other places, other situations? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they rightly chose, in keeping with the theme of RuneQuest, a Dark Ages Europe. Yeah, and... Um... There's a couple things that uh, they do is that everybody gets uh, spirit magic. Uh, or this is where the great change from battle magic becomes spirit magic. Basically, the uh, everyman's magic. And then uh, there's divine magic, rune magic. And then on top of that is uh, the pervasive sorcery, which is uh, a very unique art to practice in this game. And it, uh, it does capture a little bit, I think, in the well keeping if you strip away some of the things that made RuneQuest uh, more Glorantha dependent. And for instance, everybody has runes that you're born under. They didn't have the runic system as heavily integrated in this in the previous game or in the later incarnation where it is absolutely paramount that you know your runes that you are born under and the runes that you have chosen for yourself and how well you deal with that. I think the new set does that a lot better. But in this one, they didn't push it as hard, although it's still there, as Mike says. I think it would have been better if at the character creation, they just removed everybody from having magic and just had shamans, priests, and sorcerers be the sole carriers of practitioner, which would technically make it a class-based system, but I don't think that's, in this case, such a bad one. Well, I, I differ slightly in that I think... Uh, they might have benefited from... Well, I, I don't necessarily approve of a great deviation from the Stafford-style original mm-hmm. uh, RuneQuest uh, because it was such an important facet of the game and I'm not as comfortable with the loss of that aspect, you know, with it having diminished importance. It might have been nice if they had done a redesign and gone for a very small, petty kind of magic that everybody could use. And then doing more what you mentioned, right, yeah. where, okay, for the real spellcasters, 
here's the meat and potatoes. But everybody has a little, like a, like every village wife can ward off an evil eye, you know, uh, something that has that European, yeah, uh, Mediterranean folklore appeal that has its roots in history, which they were clearly trying to embody here, like a, a kind of Dark Ages era. Uh, I think they could have spliced it together a little bit better. So I'm going to say that one was a deficit for me. I, I did not like the reduced importance of runes because right. the, one of the core essential concepts of RuneQuest is this world of magic that your even your warriors uh, and your chieftains who are you know combat based uh, who are all about you know, like physique and reputation uh, and the projection of strength and the building of alliances and all of that they too have a relationship with the spiritual and magical world uh, and it's so important and intrinsic that no one is without that connection. It's a consideration for every right. player. And I liked that, and I thought it was one of RuneQuest's best factors. Yeah, and you know, the new RuneQuest that really hits it hard, you know, like the Stormbulls, or Borlands is the Chieftain's God, and, you know, Arnaldo the Priestess, the, the Earth Mother, is, is so important and integral in everyday life that almost everybody uh, practices and observes respect to the gods and the runes. And the game carries the name RuneQuest. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to divorce those two. And yeah. that's a hard mix to do. Because when you're playing in uh, Dark Ages Europe and the, the titular character Cormac uh, starts out in, as a Pictish, a uh, young Pictish tribesman. And his travails in learning how to use magic and uh, survive and thrive in a world that ever seems to be hostile to his folk. And that's Cormac's saga that's sprinkled out throughout it. I liked that. There was a narrative story teaching you not only the rules, but giving clear examples of how they work. Yeah, exactly. As you move through section by section, the explanatory, like, how do you actually implement this rule that you have just read, uh, was called Cormac's saga in italics. And then it would unfold, like, how this would work during actual gameplay. You know, how would you make the calculation from this role? Uh, and the saga of Cormac uh, unfolds throughout the entirety of the book, uh, being used as a learning tool, which I liked that. Uh, so now I'm not saying that this is, you know, magicless. There's certainly plenty of it uh, in terms of sorceries and and other forms of uh, divination and, you know, religious benefits to divine magic. It's got it. Uh, but I was a little less happy with the diminished importance. Uh, now, to put a happier note on it, one of the things I loved was the pre-medievalism. I mean, the, the economic and cultural day-to-day mm. uh, -day expectations. They stayed true to Stafford's RuneQuest, you know, uh, narratives regarding... Uh, like the importance of your relationship with other tribes, uh, the relevance of your name, family, and accomplishments, uh, dealing with the consequences of your actions, such as Wehrgeld, uh, where you may have to pay for somebody. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, it was a battle, but you did kill them. And 
there is a cost with that. It is either like vengeance from the people who lost a family member or you pay them off. Uh, and, or, you know, captivity and paying off ransom so that you, you know, can be liberated and returned to your people. These were things of that Dark Ages period that are entirely appropriate for this setting. And I, I feel like they did some good things. Yeah, this is where the Avalon Hill narrative of historical fantasy really uh, shows through. I think there was a lot of potential in it. Fortunately, squandered trying to pigeonhole a magic system that had grown up out of uh, a specific game world, Glorantha, into what is essentially Dark Ages Europe that doesn't have any real antecedents. Of course, you can make it work. Definitely runes are specific to Nordic culture. But uh, glyphs and sigils, they can, you know, Quranic and uh, Greek, Coptic, and all sorts of other cultures use them. So you could easily have uh, several characters. You know, you could have a Hebrew scholar and a, uh, a learned uh, Greek physician traveling alongside uh, a Pictish mercenary and a uh, Roman sorcerer and a Sicilian <coughs> barbarian. You know, you could have a very diverse group. And I did kind of like that that kind of adventuring group that was exploring historical legends that had been come had come true would make for a very fascinating game. And they tried initially to keep with it, but I think one of the things that uh, just like with Stormbringer, Stormbringer uses the uh, basic role playing system, and uh, it's very essential here, and it really worked. Michael Moorcock uh, really was enthralled with the idea that yeah, this seemed to walk the way he wanted his characters to act and uh, function, in, both in combat and interactions with their surrounding environment. Uh, one of the things that's lacking is, while I appreciate the RuneQuest, uh, or Glorantha, pardon me, the Glorantha source book, I think a, a Dark Ages primer would have also been uh, very helpful. Uh, they put some in here, and as we're going to start here, we're going to break it down well, a little they, bit. They, they had me when the only ducks uh, in this game are on the dinner table. <laughs> okay, I was in. You're yeah. like, boom, oh man, sold. Oh, boy, you got me. Yeah, and, you know, uh, looking at in the Game Master section, the trade oh, uh, was, was very good. But um, starting yeah, here... Historical economics is like a little minor personal groove of mine and I I love RuneQuest in particularly because or in particular because they actually pay attention you know like these were uh, tidbits that they did the homework for and the uh, you know parsing together a way in which players could experience something similar to you know ancient world economics was great to me. I mean, it, like it, it shouldn't be the dominating facet of a game but it should be there in the background you know, reasserting that indeed you are in a different time period with different expectations and different requirements, uh, you know, such as ransom and weregeld and things like that. Yeah. Not to mention the cost of certain undertakings is very, very high compared to others. Uh, you know, one thing may seem very common. Uh, you can find it in any rural place, uh, you know, even places poorly supplied. But other things can only be found in great cities and cost an inordinate amount of coin. That, I'm 100% okay with that. Yeah, it really, uh, 
it, it really made me as a game master grow when trying to run this because I felt like I'm not fully versed enough to understand the concepts of economic medieval economic trade, let alone dark, how it, uh, it differed from Dark Ages. And it started me on a path of historical scholarship that I still pursue today. So I have this addition to thank for that. But um, starting here, creating adventure, we're just going to uh, gloss over this. You did, uh, roll dying age or just choose. Uh, they recommend your first character should just be a barbarian. But uh, one gets you primitive. Two to three is a nomadic culture. Four, five, or six is barbarian. And seven or eight are civilized, which pretty much straddles about the, the stress society. Most people lived in a semi-barbaric state of uh, either previous fallen barbarian empires that had uh, existed with a larger one. And the remnants of civilization were kind of scattered and far flung. Yeah, welcome to the Dark Ages. Uh, you know, civilization had started to ebb forward and then had crumbled and was beginning to work its way back out of the hole. Uh, and that meant that a lot of places that, although in this era, in this time, we look back on the names of those places as being the, the names of civilized places full of huge cities and organized structured and all of that that was not the case 1500 years ago <laughs> no uh, and so they tell you to generate your uh, after generating your culture that your character comes from to generate your homeland clan and uh, your tribe uh, region or even country and then uh, your parents occupation which is vital to determining your previous standing and then now your current adventure occupation this is merely like it's adventurer or wanderer. It's up to you how you want to put it. But yeah, you're an adventurer now, your previous occupation. So, you know, disturbing your stats, uh, attributes, and assigning the relevant bonuses along several different scores. And they talk about the occupation table. So, like for primitive cultures, it's not really looking good for uh, your choices. You're either a fisher, a hunter, or a apprentice shaman. That's it, because that's welcome to being the subsistence yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, the the subsistence level existence of rural communities. Like, were you by the ocean? You fished. <laughs> were you on land? You farmed. <laughs> welcome to it. You know, and I hunted. And then the only other possibilities were like some form of spiritual capacity, or you know, I'm the boss's son. You know, that's it, nobility. Uh, which happens in Rude Quest from time to time. You know, if you have somebody of rank. Uh, <laughs> and rank means different things depending on where you come from. If you're from the backwater sticks, that rank may not count a whole lot somewhere else. If you're from a great city, like I am the son of, like, the actual uh, lord of this region. Okay, that's some clout. Yeah. It can happen, but yeah, Rune Quest made a lot of room for these things and I still approve uh, sometimes it wasn't as glorious as one might have imagined but that's okay no um, to become a uh, let's see here just a hunter hunters kill wild animals for food and clothing supplements its chancy diet with leaves roots nuts herbs berries grubs and insects Remember, hunters are the poorest class people in the room quest game um, so they have a lot of practical skills plant lore um, obviously listening and tracking are essential 
<laughs> knowing what not to eat is just as important as knowing what to eat. And sneaking and hiding are very important in this one. Um, of the distinctions here. And you start with some basic magic, uh, spirit magic, and that's about it. And then we're just going to briefly go over like the nomadic cultures. Uh, and you got the assistant shaman, the crafter, the herder, hunter. Noble is your first appearance of yeah. in the nomadic. And of course, shaman and warrior. So being a nomadic warrior, not too shabby, um, but still using primarily spirit magic. Now you get into the barbarian cultures. Now this can range from anything from an Ostrogoth. Those Goths. <laughs> those Vandals. And then yeah, and Vandals. Thank How you. did we wind up with this many pizzas? I did not order pizzas. But I had to pay for pizzas. <coughs> I did not order any pizzas. Those Vandals. One time we rented on an entire house, beach house, to the Vandals. Came back, it was terrible. They just they burned all the furniture, scribbled on the walls, and toppled everything. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. Ah, the vandals. There were many barbarians that made their names throughout the period of the mid dark ages. Uh, now, of course, here we have something more like I mean, if you should happen to be noble from one of these tribes, I mean, you could be Lothar of the Hill people, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they come out with crafter and now the entertainer. The farmer, fisher, herder, hunter, noble, and priest, and also shaman and warrior. And so those all give an appearance. And now your first time is you're starting to get some divine magic because barbarians have a much more codified belief system in this uh, era. And so that is shown here. Yeah, do not be fooled by the word barbarian. Uh, you know, in Stafford's writing, there was a great understanding that while a culture might not be seen uh, as, you know, being civilized in the fashion of the very citified and gentrified, uh, that did not mean that it lacked for complexity, sophistication, and, uh, you know, genuine rule sets and, like, unique, specific worldviews. So, all right, well, we're going to take a break and be right back, and we'll tear in some more of the uh, Deluxe Edition Room Quest. So stick around. Right, we're back. So, yeah, talking about RuneQuest, a lot of cool stuff in here, and we were just talking about the barbarians, so we ended up with that. I'd like to show what we're trying to showcase here is that as each culture is you're seeing an advancement in society and culture, it opens up more avenues, like the entertainer and you know, yeah, there's the initiate priest, reasonable pre assumption that uh, a degree of luxury and comfort has to be present at least some economic activity beyond sheer subsistence must be present before these more luxurious activities can actually be supported uh, they're just you know like boy nobody can throw their coppers to you know a uh, you know jongleur who visits from town to town in the rural sticks where literally they're paying each other in like scraps of fur from slain animals and like uh you know root vegetables okay it just doesn't work in a culture that subsistence level but as you advance into more and more sophisticated culture you have these luxuries and theoretical adventurer origins coming available and 
Yeah. Great job outlining those. Yeah, I, I, I really like this part. Is like when you get into civilized culture, uh, the occupations that your adventurer came from. You have the adept sorcerer, civilized or apprentice sorcerer. You have to qualify to be an adept, but you would start out nominally as an apprentice sorcerer and work your way up. The crafter, civilized. I'm just going to take a quick uh, occupation list here, and it may sound a little boring, but armor, baker, brewer, butcher, carpenter, cook, cooper, herbalist, jeweler, joiner. Leather worker, mason, potter, smith, tailor, weaver, showing that you're just Tinker, a, tailor, soldier, spy. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> not only a great diversity of crafts, but it's required. It literally is the backbone of civilization at that point. And then, of course, we had the entertainer, farmer, healer, uh, herders, initiates, and uh, which are the uh, starter priests and merchant, noble, sailor, scribe, soldier, and <clears throat> the world's oldest profession, thief. Uh, sorry, sorry, ladies uh, of the night. Um, I hate to tell you this, but it was the thief. But however, the first practical trade—you <laughs> got us. Uh, useful and productive, not to mention, you know, viewed favorably, far more favorably than the even older rogue. Uh, <laughs> just you have it, I will take it. <laughs> Yeah, but thief isn't necessarily an occupation with a great retirement plan. <laughs> Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Yeah, the other one-tenth is knowing how well you can run. So, so. The, rest of, <laughs> so the rest of the book goes quickly into... Because uh, hell's a-coming. Oh, yeah. And I'll be coming with it. <laughs> so the, uh, the book goes into movement uh, and starting the damage, uh, or how to damage, how to dish it out, and damage, how to avoid it. The combat system comes in. Well, as we mentioned that, uh, yeah, now it's time about, for to bring up the Mechaomancer. Yeah, as you get into the combat, as we get into the weapons, and boy, there's a lot of a lot of weapons in RuneQuest. A lot of swords and knives. Pointy objects. Oh, yeah. Suddenly staring into them. And that's when the Mechaomancer sees the future. Oh, man. Staring. What a, what a misfortunate future it is, too. Oh, I, I see ill-aspected omens on the horizon. Oh, we're talking 40th anniversary Star Frontiers. Exactly, yeah. Star Frontiers games uh, going to its 40th anniversary. Boy, <sighs> man, did this? I mean, this man, this gonna be a hard one. Week. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about both love and hate here. Uh, we're going to run the gamut next week. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to like lay the cards on the table and say that uh, be prepared for a little bit of a roller coaster because. We're going to be talking about some beloved reminiscences, uh, and we're also going to be talking about some extremely unfortunate uh, turns of event. Yeah, recently. So. Not gonna, not gonna, like snatch the kimono off and you know do a jig for you right here and now, but yeah, you know, we've given a little titillating whisper of what's to come. Titillating. Yeah, <laughs> the kimono is back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing. And, but yeah, so we'll be talking about Star Frontiers, the good, the bad, and uh, of course the ugly. And uh, it's it's gotten ugly real quick. Uh, we're going to talk about the reminiscences. We didn't play a whole lot of Star Frontiers, but we. So, first, I had to play a couple of games here and there uh, back in the day when it was. It still wasn't a, a bad game. Another guy run it for us. Uh, Ted Darling. He ran. It for, uh, 
for me, and I rather liked it. I was rather fond of it. I just like Traveler a lot better. Mike introduced me to Traveler, and I was like, you know, there was something about the ethos of Traveler that captured that almost Firefly imagination、uh, in us. The like, yeah, you could go anywhere, do anything in Star Frontiers, although it was very focused. We got a ship. We got a good little crew. Now we got to find a way to stay in the skies. Yeah,、uh, and that ethos. Had a much larger appeal to us, but that doesn't mean that we don't remember Star Frontiers affectionately because、yeah. it was part of that birthplace、uh, after Traveler of the first games. Of I、Science、definitely like the Barlow-esque、uh, guide to aliens of the、uh, core races that they provided you with. You know, yeah, you human, you kind of know what they look like, right? <laughs> but I like the Azarian, the Brusk, and the Dralosite. And also the really、uh, sinister but cool Sathar, the enigmatic Sathar, and what explained what they were all about. Very Hainlin-esque. So we'll、yeah. be visiting that.、Uh, It was properly inspired by a lot of the great stuff that was out there at the time. So don't underestimate like the the origins of Star Frontiers. But that brings the Mechanomancer segment to a close, and we return to RuneQuest Deluxe Edition. Now I love this part here. This is the one I wanted to get to.、Um, I'm going to give this over to Mike because some of the words here are going to tongue-tie me. So I would just like him to read Cormac's saga as they start to explain.、Um, they, they've explained to you all the rules, strike ranks, damage bonuses, and how to conduct combat. So there's a nice little thing here, and I'm going to give the uh, uh, floor over to Mike for this one because Cormac's saga here is really reminiscent. It's worth noting. The local potentate. Ruler, our self-styled king of Gallia Narbonensis, was upset with Signifreya's daughter because she preferred Cormac's company to his. The potentate has had Signy, clad only in her shift and carrying only a dagger, tossed into the arena. The degenerate crowd roars its approval when a lion, looking for lunch, swaggers in through another gate. Parrying a lion with a dagger is an exercise in futility. Fortunately, Signy has a high dodge skill, 104%. A lion has two attacks, and Signy's player successfully rolls her skill against both of them. Since the game master did not roll a critical or special success, Signy takes no damage. Signy then stabs out with her dagger and hits, doing four points of damage to the great cat, which is annoyed. The potentate, tired of seeing Signy dodge his wrath, signals after several rounds that another lion be let in. If Signy decides to dodge both beasts, her player may put only 52% dodge against each. However, Signy manages to stab and critically hit the original lion in the head, doing 13 more points of damage, enough to make even a hungry lion think twice. The crowd is so pleased with Signy's prowess that their cheers convince the potentate to save Signy Freya's daughter for use in future games. <laughs> yeah. I like that, and it does a very good job and concisely sums up the core essential rules of special and critical successes. How you can assign only dodge to one opponent, and if you have to break it up between multiple opponents, you have to decide what your dodge is going to be more important to, to the, than the other. There's a lot of choices in the combat of RuneQuest. It is very lethal, and dodging is probably your best bet. Shield use is even better. Oh well, yeah. I mean, if the option's there for you, by all means, make use of that. And of course, the efficient <laughs> use of armor. And, and this is one thing that Mark, Mike and us liked is that you could 
detail your armor right down to the very boots and gloves that you wore. Yeah, the assemblage of different types of gear. Uh, and this also brings back uh, momentary glimpses of, for instance, uh, the writing of Robert E. Howard, where Conan found himself cobbling together mixed pieces of gear from all around the world uh, of his adventures. That, you know, he might be wearing a shirt of mail from one place, uh, you know, boots from another, uh, a helm from, you know, a uh, culture that uh, it was made principally for people riding. Uh, yeah, Hercurian helm with a horse plume. Yeah, yeah, the and a Byzantine shirt of uh, a shirt of mail over a Byzantine uh, brigadine, and so on. Yeah, and so forth. just a mishmash. But the system here allows for the player to account for the value of all of the different things that they might have in their possession or be wearing. And Michael was very uh, affectionate about the Byzantine armor. Mm. Yeah, one of history's forgotten children. Because uh, it falls loosely under like the the categories that D and D made for armor later on, uh, and so it, it just gets left out of the mix. It's not actually mentioned frequently. But once upon a time, it was commonplace. So seeing it referenced here very specifically. And, you know, given its own treatment was, like, kind of a nice touch. If you're a history nerd. Yeah, and we kind of were. Or, well, we still like, are. We yeah, doing? pretty... Just a little? Just no, a little. really? If you say so. But I'm thinking it's more like a lot. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. So, next uh, chapter is covered the skill use, uh, how to use... Uh, and then into uh, magic, which is spirit magic, and how to bind spirits, especially for shamans, very useful. Divine magic and how to improve your power score and get more divine spells by sacrificing your power yearly or uh, monthly celebrations to your god. Yeah, and, and that, of course, is a more universal system that whether you're using Glaranthan gods or gods of some other culture, uh, whatever you have, divine magic. Yeah, it's up to the game to master to do a lot of work to assign what runes are aligned to what gods. Yeah, much tougher threshold there. That's one where... Pretty easy to figure out where Zeus and uh, Woden would stand. Yeah. But it's a lot harder to figure out where maybe like Tyr or um, Achilles, or not Achilles, uh, excuse me, Mercury would be. Okay, yeah. Uh, when you have your really obvious, like, major pantheon deities, like, oh, it's the sea god. Or, hey, the storm god with thunder powers. Or the fire god. Yeah, like, the big obvious archetypes, so easy to handle. But, you know, like, this is in the deficit column. For the newly arriving dungeon master or creative, this would have been a little bit of a tougher threshold. Yeah, how would you have the Irish Brigand? Oh, jeez. How to find in the room places. I mean, you could do it. It would take some time and thought and probably a little trial and error. But I think you could get it right after a while. But it's a big task to put right on world building. Yeah, especially with pantheons that, you know, that some of the characters within them uh, do not conform to, like, the really similar major archetypes. Yeah, like the Scythians had a horse goddess. Yeah. Does uh, the Romans, like, oh, my gosh, we got to worship that goddess. Yeah. So, that's cool. But sorcery. Now, here's where I really like it. Uh, 
sorcery's changed a little bit between the editions. They've always kind of tweaked it. I really like the sorcery on here because sorcery is kind of a bootstrap magic. It's what you put into it, and it's study, hard work, and it's enchantment, it's binding of spirits, kind of Solomon-esque in the way that uh, binding elementals, but also yes. Plato-esque as well. Tonic, I think, is the word. It, it sort of brushes up against a lot of the esoteric mysticism uh, that you know we associate uh, with Western cultures. Uh, yeah, nice little, little black and white illustration of the uh, titular or the uh, iconic sorcerer Nicholas summoning a nymph and then binding her and uh, harnessing power. And then they cover ritual magic, which is uh, important to all three, specifically to divine magic, but also to uh, shamans for summoning and sorcerers as well. Yeah, and made distinct by the fact that like ritual magics are things that, you know, preparation must be made. These yeah. are not like spur of the moment. Oh, well, you know, like the you know, uh, monsters have popped out of the woods and we're under attack. That's not what this is for. Yeah, a shaman's got to take time out to pra uh, prepare himself fast and get ready to... I'm in the spirit world now. Yeah, you are. Uh, well, you know, um, example. <laughs> you show up at the hut by the ancient graveyard. Oh, the yeah. old wizard pops out and goes, If you cross me, I will summon an even more terrible than any in hell. Uh, uh, you know, but he can't actually do anything right there on the spur of the moment. Hey, but hey, give him some time to prepare. And uh, thanks a bunch for the res, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay, that it's kind of where sure. I'm going with that there. Yeah, you could really do the Conan uh, movie with this uh, really well. Now, now, in their defense, uh, like although we've looked at a couple of little deficits on this, uh, I did like the scenario aids section. Yeah, the, where we're getting into the game master book is book three, and they give you some good advice on running a game, how to prep for it how to keep uh, a list of allies and creatures to show up. Potential challenges. But I like the scenario uh, aids here, the encounters, like urban road encounters, like uh, zero one, group of traveling nobles with, uh, nobles with extensive entourage. Um, another could be a, an adept sorcerer with entourage or a cart of goods driven by a crafter or farmers in carts or a thief or pickpocket. And then uh, the wilderness encounters, uh, fields of wild herbivores, Scrub or rough terrain with carnivores, one monster which is dangerous to humans. And it really sets the idea for you, including magical terrain and the rural encounter table, you know, like the Lord's Country Manor, empty fields suitable for grazing. But the magical encounter table, you know, a non human intelligent group of species, leader of non human group or species. And they're pretty open ended, but you know, with the uh, zero zero demonic demigod. Oh, yeah, just wandering around. <laughs> Help! Yay! Uh, talk about the spirit plane, uh, other encounters that you can uh, have while on the, in the spirit world, and treasures, generations, uh, how to cut, and which stones have such value for how their cuts on them, and creature listings, which uh, kind of predates some stuff. They put creatures in the classifications, which I thought was pretty handy for the time. And then uh, they give a brief. Uh, setting like here on the uh, coast here of Africa you have uh, Berbers and the Visigoths and the Frankish kingdoms which technically aren't civilized they're barbarian yeah uh, remember recalling back to what I had mentioned in our previous segment uh, that the names may seem familiar to us now 
but at the time this is ostensibly set in uh, these were not considered civilized areas yeah, they the only civilized into... area is the byzantine empire yeah that's that's where civilization where you have the civilization come from big There's cities a... sophistication literacy knowledge uh you know vibrant trade uh, but you know that's all along the mediterranean coast uh, whereas inland just a sludge pit just yeah, a they, disaster and they talk about the standards of living table the like 360 pennies yearly is this substance level all the way up to five million seven hundred sixty thousand pennies yearly which is emperor status Whew. yeah you're bringing in that much money uh that's a lot know. of pennies and also uh markets uh how to set them up can and... i pay for that in pennies yes, let me can. count them out one by one no. <laughs> um tables on the uh goods and services provided by your armor and you know I have a coupon. no you cannot use your <laughs> and even how to monetize your spells oh yeah if you're a healer or even a, sh- a, a penniless shaman if you have the heal spell you too can find work <laughs> and then they have a section on ships and sailing and then as they come up, well they should they come up with one of my favorite scenarios the money tree now this is ostensibly set in Glorantha, but it can easily be converted. But the idea is, is that uh, there is a uh, fertility priestess of the harvest, and they go every year or every so often to shake the money tree. <laughs> Literally, it has, its leaves are copper and its bark is silver, and its fruit are gems. And so yeah. you will pluck it, but in this one, you have. Uh, Notorious Duck Bandit, who shows up later, and <sighs> Larange, and uh, yeah, that's great. And the creatures book is pretty much what you'd expect to find. Like, there's some nice surprises, like the Bandersnatch, and uh, well, they've got the familiar Walktopus. Yep, yeah, well, all yeah. the classic standards of RuneQuest are present here. But uh, yeah, the Formorian. You know, those guys with one eye, one uh, arm, and one leg. Uh, distinguished from the Cyclops, okay? This, you know, the Fomorian is you know, like horribly misshapen. And, uh, but don't underestimate their or, uh, yeah. their danger level. Yeah, hopping around and... Uh, let's see, what else? Well, what's a good one here just to pluck out of here? Oh, um, the various types of spirits, of course, and skelly men smell like death and butt. <laughs> And yeah, the octopus. So there's a large number here, and then um, they move into the Glorantha book, which gives you an introduction, sets up the mythos history, sets up a fully runic magic here, and uh, which can provide you with the inspiration to come up with your own pantheons. And then uh, details the cult of Rinalda, where creatures are primarily from, talks about dragon newts and the effect of chaos. And then comes down to the final part of the book where, you know, you come to the charts and it winds it up. So all in all, it is a complete game. Uh, they did come out with a wide variety of supplements, but most of those were esoteric lore based on Glorantha or a few adventures like Griffin Island. Like we covered uh, Griffin Mountain, but uh, Chris Hudson let me know that uh, Griffin Mount Island was, was a different adventure than Griffin Mountain. And that was Avalon Hill making it a more uh, Dark Ages type setting, kind of removing some of the Glorantha from it, but not completely, but kind of updating it and giving it some new spins. So it is 
a different game than Griffin Mountain Party, but it still has kind of the same thing of exploring a frontier, kind of like Isla Dread. So, yeah, but uh, this was a game that had a lot of potential, but um, the Dark Ages stuff kind of fell by the wayside because, well, Glarence is just, it's the thing that everybody remembered about RuneQuest, and, you know, Avalon Hills attempts to kind of steer it in a new direction. Didn't really work out that well. It didn't pan out, but there's a lot of good praise for this, and it was a game that kind of kept the flag flying, and it eventually would return to Chaosium in due time, but uh, it was Avalon Hills to have for quite a while, and uh, I think they did a good job with it. Uh, may not have been the best executed plan, but it certainly had heart, and it definitely was a new avenue of approach to the Dark Age role-playing era. So I like it, and I think that there's a lot going on here that could be uh, mined if you had a, a lot of work ahead of you and you were willing to do it. You can really do a lot with this version of RuneQuest for a Dark Age hero. Yes, uh, that was the number one with a bullet for me. The favorite part of this was that it uh, highlighted the thing I enjoy most about RuneQuest in the first place. Now, while I'm a big fan of the runes and the spiritual connection things being more emphatically pushed in uh, traditional rune quest, uh, the thing that I liked most was that this put its greatest emphasis on the like dark ages state of the world, Uh, the the place in which people were dwelling and the, the way they interacted with one another day to day. Uh, had a much closer resemblance to be uh, you know, like that that Dark Ages world, and I liked that. I mean, the, that little whiff of historical authenticity—it uh, doesn't have to be perfect because right, it landed you, enough you, that you see people get into that state where like it must be a perfect representation and all. Oh no, no, no! Come down off the cliff! I, I don't need that. Like, I, I don't need perfect realism in my fantasy game with pointy-eared elves and uh, stubby-legged dwarves, okay? I, like, perfectionism, that train left the station, okay? But it had that wonderful semblance of historical authenticity that is just right. I, man, this this was my, you know, perfect bowl of porridge, okay? Yeah. It was the, it was the soft bed. Like, oh, this one's just right. Not, not too hard, not too soft, just perfect. So I was very much in my happy zone. Uh, and, well, I got a lot of fond memories of RuneQuest. Yeah, Simmeric Q rides again. Yep. Irish fart. <laughs> Pictish fart. Always up, cattle thieving and up to no good. Well, uh, yeah, I know. One of the great works of Irish literature, uh, Tain Bokuli, uh, is basically the story of cattle theft. <laughs> so Mike alluded, you know, to something earlier, but I think that we finally, we've come to the conclusion that, you know, the arcane eye, I think, I think it's run its course. I think, I, you know, it just seems so rude to interrupt. I think we should just have. Uh, a little cafe corner where we talk about role-playing games and small independent projects. I think that would be a lot better. You know, a little less ambushy. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's too jarring. And I it's, think... it's popping up like Kilroy, like yeah. just, you know, you round a corner. Ah! <laughs> so, <laughs> you, 
you inexplicably as you round this bend. You are struck upon the back of the head, and the arcane eye rifles through your pockets for loose change. So yeah, I think that it's time to put the arcane eye behind us and open up a new era. We'd like to call the RPG Corner. And so here we are, yeah. a little cozy corner note that we've created. We're going to look at Humble Bundles, latest offering, the RPG Bundle of Classic Fantasy RPGs. And if you haven't heard about this, well, you've got about six days left at the time of this podcast. So this is the 18th. So yeah, six more days, well, 24, 25, the 25th, uh, it'll be gone. So anyway, you can pay what you want for this, uh, which will get you basically uh, a lot of good stuff. There's 59 items here. For 50 bucks, you get a hardcover copy, hardcover copy, um, of Stoneheart Grounding from Frog God, Frog God Games. And uh, in here are just a plethora, plethora of stuff, uh, including old school essential advanced uh, How many exactly fantasy. are in a plethora? In this case, 59. Yeah, that's a lot of games. You get Draven Athic, uh, the expansions, player's guide, swords and wizardry. Pendium, you can play this with uh, OSC uh, Essentials. There's also the uh, Referees book and Players book for uh, Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy, which is the uh, redo of First Edition AD&D. Uh, there's the Sea King Malice and Let's Get Kraken Adventures, as well as <laughs> Carcass Crawler uh, 1 and 2 uh, with uh, Grand Dochi and also Old School Essentials Rogues Gallery, uh, two adventures of the Halls of the Blood King and the Isles of the Plangent Mage. As well as Temple of Dagon. Well, I don't want to go there. Um, talk to me right now on that one. <laughs> well, temple, we're going to run Temple of Dagon. Let's well, not. And the Phylactracy, too, is also in this bundle, as long as some other great stuff. So if you're interested in old school gaming, get on yourself over there to Humble Bundle and pay what you want, what you can, and uh, get yourself a whole bunch of PDFs and Pay high enough, uh, fifty bucks will get you with just some shipping, around fifty-seven, fifty-eight dollars. When you're when they're all done with you, a hard copy of Stoneheart Mouth. So it's literally a treasury, and it's almost too good not to get get into this if you're into old school gaming. So yeah, yeah well you, worth your time. Here are RPG Cafe Corner. We're we're going to keep covering all this stuff. So yeah, I'm having my peppermint tea. So we're just going to be and having the kimono pressed. So yeah, uh, that'll do it for us. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here and uh, head on off. But in the meantime, if you like what you see or hear, now you can see here. Hmm, there's something about seeing. Why does that stick with me? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, still haunted by the arcane eye, which recently. No, no, no. We're, we're we're past that now. We're never never going to go back to the arcane eye. Okay, I said it. Haunted. Do you understand? I said it. So, but if you like what you hear, uh, you know, you can uh, follow us on the uh, good old face of book and, uh, <laughs> you know, you can get updates on our, when we post our new episodes, or of course you can uh, like us on the Anchor app, download that, and you can listen there, as well as Spotify, because we might be moving over fully to Spotify here in the future. And with that, I think that'll do it for us. We got nothing else to talk about other than say... May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.